So, Laura, this podcast is called Quirky and or Queer. Okay. I guess the thing that inspires... Do I have to choose? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I chose... Hello, Quirky Queerdos. T. Johnny here. This is episode eight of Quirky and or Queer, a podcast, a labor of love, a labor of interest, a labor of self-care. When I started this podcast, I did it because I needed to do something, anything which connected me to the quirky and queer aspects of myself and to the wider community. Over the last five months, a lot's happened. I've met with some magical people and I've created content I am very proud of. I likely wouldn't have created this podcast if it were not for my guest today. Laura Shepard has been on my mind as a guest since the very beginning. I've known Laura for a little bit, but it wasn't until I saw her speak at a queer elders cafe during Halifax Pride in 2018 that she sparked something in me. Laura really knows how to tell a story, and Halifax is a richer community having Laura in it. Her perspective, her voice, and her passion for a better world flow through the work she does as a speaker, a writer, and as a community advocate. If I hadn't seen Laura speak at the cafe, or listened to her do stand-up, or if I hadn't already read her writing online, I honestly don't think I would have started this podcast. I am so grateful she allowed me to interview her and photograph her for this podcast episode. We recorded the episode at the end of April 2019 while sharing coffee and donuts in her kitchen in Halifax, Nova Scotia. This is an intimate episode. We go from quiet to loud, so turn up your volume and tune in. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Let's get into it, shall we? This is Quirky and or Queer. Do you consider yourself to be quirky? Oh, I'm eccentric. Yeah. Right. Uh, eccentric is like maybe not as creative as quirky. Okay. Right. Like maybe not as free. Mm-hmm. Right. I still notice the ways in which I'm inhibited. Mm-hmm. Right. Other people may notice the ways in which I'm so out. Yeah. Right. But for me, I still know all the things that still shame me. Yeah. Still, I mean, I had a lifetime of that in a way that few people can today understand. It's really, you know, it's hard to depict how dark the dark ages were. Mm-hmm. Not just to others, but to ourselves. Yeah. And so um, we fall in the habits of all the ways the straight world fails, you know. Yeah. Uh, miserable, short, brutish lives. And um, uncovering... <laughs> like an onion, all the layers of freedom. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, and like you're doing it from the inside out so you're seeing the underside of each layer. And you have to remember, oh no, it's a different world on the top. Yeah. And um, a lot of people get oppressed by the underside yeah. and forget to go, wait, no, it's about the freedom. Yeah. It's a layer of freedom. It's not a layer of oppression once you take it off. So that by the time I came out, it was like, you know, I am not going back. Laura has a way with words, like I said earlier. She knows how to tell a story. We sat around her kitchen table, and sometimes as we were talking, our voices went down to a whisper. Laura would say things like, miserable, short, brutish lives. She would talk about how she is not going back. Listening back and trying to find something poignant to say is proving to be a bit of a challenge. What more can I say that Laura probably can't say with more grace? Laura has just turned 60 years old and has lived an incredible life. Our interview threads between discussing the concept of otherness, while Laura also weaves in history and perspective from her lived experiences of growing up in the United States. I feel super, super lucky. I mean... Cripes, I just turned 60 years old and I'm having, the best, and I'm having the best year of my life. Like, yeah. how many 60-year-olds do that? Yeah. Right? So you were born in 58? 59. 59, January okay. 59. Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. When I was born, Dwight Eisenhower was the president of the United States and Fulgencio Batista was the president of Cuba. Wow. There were, if I'd have been born a week earlier, uh-huh. there would have still been only 48 states. But oh. Alaska joined early in January of 59. And Hawaii didn't become a state until like May or June. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
You know how the American flag puts the number of states as stars, stars in yeah. the blue field? Yeah. So for, from 1912, from the time Arizona joined, there were 48 stars yeah. all through First World War, Second World War, most of the 20th century. And then 59, 49 stars uh-huh. for about three months. And then 50 stars since then. Yeah. So whenever I see an antique like go to an antique store and I see an American flag, I always count the number of stars. Oh, interesting. Because the 49s are really rare. Yeah. And collectors will pay a lot of money for them. So it's one of those buy low, sell high things where you can't lose. But it's, count the stars. What a specific thing to know because that's something I had no idea. But I just yeah. I guess you, you just know. And you were born in Boston? Uh, no, I was born in Fall River, Massachusetts. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which is uh, an industrial city um, in southeastern Massachusetts adjacent to Rhode Island. And Rhode Island's got this weird, like Rhode Island is bisected by this sort of two-lobed bay with an island in the middle, the island of Aquidnet, which is also, uh, Aquidneck, which is also uh, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. But on the eastern shore, that bay runs right up into a huge river that runs into Massachusetts. Mm And there's a little square of Rhode Island to the east of it. And like you can't get to the rest of Rhode Island without going through Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's called the Eastern Shore of Rhode Island. And when I was a kid, there was still a phrase, Swamp Yankee. Swamp Yankee. A Swamp Yankee was someone from the Eastern Shore of Rhode Island. I feel like that'd be a really good horror movie. And my dad had, uh, note the place names. I was born in Fall River. We lived in Tiverton, Rhode Island, right? Like, it's in that chunk of Massachusetts where virtually every place name is repeated in Nova Scotia. Well, when you said Fall River, I was like, oh. Truro, Lunenburg, Bridgewater, they're all place names in Massachusetts and in Nova Scotia. When you said earlier your mother was born in Truro, you meant Truro in Massachusetts? No, Truro, Nova Scotia. (laughs) Excuse my confusion. Yes, yeah, no, I can, I'm getting it now. I'm getting it now. Yeah, no. So you said that you uh, you, you identify as eccentric. Um, only like I'm. I don't know whether I'm autistic or not. Mm-hmm. I know my brother's a textbook case. I've got a kid who's diagnosed with it. It's very common among a lot of trans people. Yeah, I have a lot of the characteristics in common, not least of which is hyperlexia. Yeah. Um, my formal diagnosis is, because I actually got myself checked out at one point, while I do not meet the criteria for an autism spectrum diagnosis, I inhabit the part of the spectrum where you find those who yeah. do. So I'm either slumming with the autistics or my form isn't really readily detectable yeah. by the conventional diagnostics. Well, all those diagnostic manuals and criteria, they're just created to classify symptoms and... And others sometimes. Yeah. Um, um, at any rate, no, I have... Um, in some ways, I'm so perfectly ordinary and mundane, it's boring. But um, Those are not words yeah, I would use for you. I'm, I'm quirky. Yeah. I'm quirky. I've got quirks. Um, what about... Queer? Do you identify with that term? Yeah, I do identify as queer. Um, not necessarily in terms of who I'm attracted to, mm-hmm. but the culture that I feel most affinity with, most familiarity with. I feel like not only can I swim in this, but it will keep me afloat. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the situations I've gotten into a lot of the streams I've gotten into in my life I've simply felt like all I could do was swim against the current yeah and to feel like I'm being buoyed and supported in this one mm-hmm. um, that's like your home stream you know yeah so you say so you just turned 16 this is so far the best year of your life well I mean each each one since I came out yeah you know? but yes it's getting better it's funny they they say it takes five years to transition. And really, at the end of year five, it changed. Like, yeah. I was no longer burdened and weighed down by all that had gone wrong and all that might not work out. And it was just like, you know, this is my time. Mm-hmm. Do, like, realize this is my time. Yeah. And take it. Um, 
and I think I had to go through the harder periods to internalize that. Yeah. To really believe it. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, it's really simply been a process of learning to love and appreciate myself. Mm-hmm. And to give myself permission to be me. Yeah. Um, and it's something I wish I'd learned years and years earlier. But I also know that given the times that I've lived in, I'd have been a very different trans person if I had come out, you know, at 22. Yeah. Which I almost did. But there were no models, and it was like, and I couldn't anticipate the coming gender bending of the '80s, even though like I would have, I, I would have flourished in it. Yeah. Right. Um, I could definitely see you fronting like a new wave synth pop band. Oh, it was, it was, you know, like, and then I came back to Nova Scotia. I mean, in Nova Scotia in the '80s, um, you know, interest rates were twenty-two percent. Um, unemployment was 17% on the mainland and 26% in Cape Breton. What fucking prosperity? What greed? What money? It wasn't happening here. Yeah. The Buchanan government took us from a, a $500 million direct debt to a five, $5 million, to a $15 million direct debt in 15 years. They spent the supposed revenues of the offshore oil boom mm-hmm. before the offshore oil boom fizzled out as it turns out yeah and yeah it was it deficit after deficit it was like really tough to get a job mm-hmm. it was also it was still very much a parochial monoculture mm-hmm. you had to fit in and meet everybody's values in addition to being able to do the job yeah. to get the job you can um, fight against the culture because it's and so I ended up working largely in not-for-profit, and so I ended up getting a chance to work in government. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, it's like, this is the most un-me, you know, like, I mean, I was at the kind of the heart of the establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was an aide to a cabinet minister, and it was like, you know, I'm at the heart of the establishment, and this just fucking sucks. But I'm never going to have anything as exhilarating and that pays me as well yeah right but it's also a career killer because you get saddled with a a partisan label yeah then the government changes and nobody will hire you so we just heard laura talk about being at the heart of the establishment and going through those hard periods so that she could come into her own now she is finding this time to be her time Her message of giving herself permission to be the most authentic version of herself is a lesson I believe we were all trying to learn. Laura had to live a lot of life to get to the point of being able to give herself that permission. And for years, I had had nose surgery about a year ago, um, or eight months ago. Um, And I knew I had broken my nose about seven times. But the doctor counted nine fractures and said it was like somebody had just taken my nose, put it in a bag, smashed it with a hammer, and put it back on my face. I couldn't breathe out of my right nostril at all. That's the purpose of the surgery, was Mm -hmm. to open up my right nostril. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I became really aware of how heavy I breathe and how much sound I make and all when it was no longer necessary. Because I'll still like breathe through my mouth even though my nose works. And I have to go. Right. Just to. So now you're so much more mindful? (laughs) Wow. I actually am so much better rested because I get more oxygen. Oh, absolutely. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. I only snore if my head's back. Do you have a distinct memory of like when you were younger, when you were like, I'm not like other people? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, first of all, my father was a clergyman in an area that was largely working class and Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, I understood there was like this inherent, my kids don't, my friends don't get it. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I mean, it was the kind of place where, you know, I mean, I walk in my friend's living rooms and there's two pictures on the wall, right? The Pope and John Kennedy. <laughs> and, um, 
so, and I was aware that my mother was a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Right? It's and, an instant and, otherness, right? Is it for like and, just in that? And this was in an era when people like went on car trips, but air travel was unaffordable. Mm. Right? So people didn't travel, like working people didn't travel internationally. And, um, and see, the curious thing about the clergy is they're afforded the status of the upper middle class, but they're paid like the garbage man. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. So there's what, what, li- what middle class lifestyle you have is mostly the charity of your friends. Wild. And you live with that. And the kids grow up internalizing that. Mm-hmm. And that sort of sense of we don't deserve it on our own, but we get it from charity, from those who do. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange thing. Um, but we always travel to Nova Scotia in the summertime for the month of July. And so that was also something that compared to... Because the town, city I grew up in, Lawrence, it's a hole now. It's like the absolute rock bottom of every measure of every social quality index in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's just a hole. It was the world's largest producer of Worsted, the suit material. Okay. And Worsted? Yeah, wool. It was a wool town. And the mills in the 50s started moving out to the south to be closer to raw materials. Um, and things were closing and breaking up and companies were breaking up. Mm-hmm. And um, the introduction of quality foreign textiles, first time there was a quality to mm-hmm. them, um, introduction of new materials. Um, so very few of those mills survived and they were starting to depopulate in the 60s. Um, there was a small Hispanic in, uh, influx around the Cuban crisis. And then subsequently from, from beginning about late 60s from Puerto Rico. Um, and vast numbers of Puerto Ricans emigrated to the mainland United States, vast numbers of those to Massachusetts, vast numbers of those to Lawrence. And so in the years I was away at university, Lawrence transformed from a city that did business in English, had English language signs and had white people on the street to a city where you needed to be able to speak Spanish to conduct business or to be safe. It was also a very violent city. Hmm. Um, And uh, so I and just about everybody I grew up with grew up with the intent of getting out. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And there's a commonality to experience in like the friends I knew in Pictou County. Yeah. That they can't relate to. How would you want to in the States? Later when I came here, you know, the sense of difference. They could understand somebody being an American coming to school in Canada, but they couldn't imagine somebody emigrating from the United States to Canada. Mm -hmm. Why are you coming here? And it wasn't a it wasn't the same question Nova Scotians would ask an immigrant. Why are you here? Where are you from? What's your, like, what kind of name is that? As though, like, you don't belong here. More a, like, bewilderment, a true bewilderment. So if you weren't a come from away, you were a come from next door. And it was like, can't you see what you're coming to? Um, I understood that I was escaping my family. I understood I was escaping my father's legacy. I would never have been anything but my father's child in that town. Yeah. Um, I was getting away from my brother. I was getting away from that military. Mm-hmm. Um, like everywhere we went, it was all about the military. My brother collected military insignia. So we had to stop at every military establishment there was, like the fucking arbor up here. And my mom and I would be sitting in the car for like an hour and a half. Yeah. Right. Um, It was just unreal. And everybody who ever came through the house had to see the collection. And my brother and I shared a room. So it's like my brother's half of the room is a museum. You know, and nobody asks about me. So my my father lived to get my brother into West Point and died 
shortly after he did. And West Point's a uh, the, military the U- U.S. U.S. military, yeah. yeah a elite, like, yeah. Royal Military College. Like okay. Yeah. Is that Lucy knocking to get in? Yeah. <laughs> For context, I should let you know that Lucy is one of Laura's animals that live with Laura in Halifax. And throughout the interview, the animals were around, providing comfort and occasionally needed to go out. But if you listen closely, you can hear some of them breathing. Lucy's sunbathing, it was my love. Um, <laughs> I see the knock of the door sounded too, like, energetic. <laughs> and see, after my father died, I also felt this responsibility, like there was some kind of death pact that I had to, you know, follow through or I'd be ruining the spirit, you know, like, fucking bullshit that gets in your head. And your father That's, died when you were 17? Yeah, I was in university. So for a long time, I tried to... And see, my parents had sent me to a prep school, which I got into on scholarship, and I hated it. Um, I didn't know any girls. You know, it was all 250 guys alone in shirts and ties. I wore a shirt and tie from the time I was 12 until I came out, you know? And, um, And I kept trying to find a job I liked that met the criteria of respectability for my family. And I basically couldn't do it. And it wasn't until I had kids of my own that I eased off myself a little bit. Um, But it wasn't until I came out that I really went back and dug through about why is that? Mm -hmm. And how did I buy into that? And um, why didn't I have the courage that I see in the young people around me to reject that? Mm -hmm. But I forget, it was a very different cultural time and you didn't have... I was, you know, it wasn't an ocean full of phytoplankton. I was one organism and there wasn't anything like me. Yeah. Um, and it's so risky to put yourself out there in, in many places, but even then it sounds like maybe even riskier to live authentically. Well, and, and, and you know, I guess I sort of also saw it politically. I mean, I couldn't help but see the church as a political institution. I couldn't help but see that it was used as a tool of dominance. So was the military. So was my brother's religious belief. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, a, you know, without having the, the tools that we have now and the language that we have now, I'd gone about exploring my own privilege. Yeah. Like, I knew what I did. And I knew that I wasn't going to get caught because I was white and Anglo and Protestant and waspish and like I met all the criteria of the establishment. So basically, nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. And that's, I mean, why are so many alternate movements full of refugees from uh, the ruling class? Because it's the only risk they're ever going to have. Mm. Yeah. It's the only thing that feels risky. And so, yeah, I did all the, you know, the on-the-road things. I mean, I grew up in, like, 10 miles from Kerouac's hometown, right? We all knew that stuff. We all followed the Grateful Dead. We all rode freight trains. We, you know, um, in that same confident way that, you know, as a white middle-class person, that nothing bad's ever really going to happen to you. I think of all the things even now like that I did while I was a heavy drug user that I, if I had been a person of color, I would have been incarcerated mm. numerous times. No, number of times I got caught by the police, and, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was nothing really radical or progressive about it. Mm-hmm. It was, in fact, very mainstream. Um, and I had a chance to really look at that critically all the time in the closet, you know. Um, and And... Also, my degree was in sociology. My thesis was in social movement and community. Um, and I wanted, you know, trying to make a theoretical connection in kind of 30 years ago. And I sort of came to the conclusion at one point, change occurs when those with power and privilege cede power and privilege. It doesn't really happen when the people on below win anything. Mm-hmm. It happens when the people in power give up. Yeah. 
feeling of differentness when I came to university. I mean, I'd come out of a prep school in New England. Um, and an elite one. Like one that took all the kids that got kicked out of other prep schools. Mm-hmm. But those were often the most troubled and elite families. Um, I went to school with Sultan Eatson's kid. One of my classmates was Mo Pahlavi, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi III, the son of the Shah of Iran. Oh, wow. Um, lots of political people, people with last names like DuPont and Mellon and Carnegie. And um, people with whom I was never going to have anything culturally in common. Yeah. Like absolutely nothing. And my father was dying, and I was under pressure to get into university. I applied to all sorts of colleges. Like, I got into Vassar, Connecticut College, Williams. I got into some really good schools in the States. But I got early mission to Acadia. And it was cheap. Yeah. So I went to Acadia. That's where I went. At a time when the dress code was grab boots, blue jeans, and check shirts, and you were typically the first generation of your family to have access to a university education. You were there to get some kind of technical skill and to get a good job with the government of the Power Corp. Yeah. And um, I started out as a biology major, couldn't fathom chemistry, couldn't fathom the... I was 17. I couldn't fathom the, the theory of chemistry. My brain wasn't developed enough. I went back to the textbook when I was like 25 and I was amazed how much sense it made. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it's true what they say about the frontal lobe. Um, it doesn't develop until later. Yeah, I mean, I was not capable of theorizing in that way yeah. at that time. I, my brain was not mature enough. Laura talks about uh, her brain not having been mature enough, which makes me think about maturity in general. Seeing Laura speak at the cafe last year, I was struck by how many stories we may not get to hear within the queer community from elders who have faced more than I will likely ever have to face. Laura has recently turned 60 years old, and we live in a space and time where health outcomes for trans folk are not great. Talk of life expectancy in this country is usually rooted around the median or average, but it should be fairly common knowledge that the average rarely represents the truth within marginalized communities. It seems to me in the queer community, uh, much of the focus on aging populations is centered around white men. Now, these folks have struggled and have experienced what it's like to be oppressed, but should they be the ones who hold the space as elders? I was recently at an event where someone stated that elders in the community are people who have knowledge and information to share. Laura is sharing her story and perspective while also applying a critical lens to the structures and ideologies which surround her now while acknowledging her privilege. She has lived a dynamic life, giving her unique and valuable insights. We continue our conversation, uh, centering it around inclusion, otherness, legacy, and loss in a bit. But first, I want to let you hear a message from another queer podcast in Halifax. Hey there, my name is Adam Myatt, and I'm one half of the podcast LOL You're Gay. My co-host Lisa Buchanan and I are two comedians from Halifax, Nova Scotia, who talk about jokes, being gay, and the glorious intersection of those two things. Find us on your favorite podcast app and subscribe for our most up-to-date content. Please check out LOL You're Gay, run by Adam Myatt and Lisa Buchanan, two friends of mine. I was recently a guest on that podcast, and I'm looking forward to hearing the episode, and I hope you check it out. They are hilarious and wonderful, compassionate, cool, radical people who do some really awesome stuff here in Halifax, and I hope you check it out. Let's get back to Quirky and or Queer. Yeah. Works for me. Yeah. Um, we 
Okay. Yeah, we're recording it. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm such a professional. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm so good at this. Uh, uh, yeah, I felt, I used to feel guilty about privileges that I'd had that I'd felt unearned. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of what I saw happen to my brother was about privilege. It wasn't mm-hmm. that he earned it. So much of shit I got was because my brother got it. Mm-hmm. Like I've got a patch somewhere that's written. It's it's a silk screen patch of the Apollo fourteen mission, and it's silk screened on spacesuit, and handwritten underneath it is this patch was carried to the moon, at Alan Shepard. And what happened was my brother had this military insignia collection. There was a guy. Alan Shepard was from southern New Hampshire, and there was a guy in the church who had gone to high school with Alan Shepard. And so my father got the guy to ask Alan Shepard for an astronaut fucking patch. Mm. And he did. He sent him one, like not off the spacesuit, because that's in the Smithsonian, but they carried these little stacks of commemorative shit with them to the fucking moon. And so he gives my brother one, all embroidered in like gold bullion thread. And uh, this nice letter, and so that's in my brother's collection. Well, my brother writes him back and goes, well, okay, so what am I supposed to say to my brother? So the next thing you know, um, like in some ways my brother had my back as a kid, but was trained by my parents to perceive me as hostile. Because like in my family, you couldn't question the validity of the military without going against everything in the family and so in and, and and again my mother you know this is what i need to fulfill myself and, and it was all like based she was born in 1921 it was based on a world that no longer exists the people she was trying to satisfy are dead you know like classic trauma thing and and she went through some really distinct periods as well like that of where class struggle was so apparent and 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 so like you're committed to it you're committed to your class getting ahead it's not about being committed to equality and um uh, yeah it just i did i i I never felt like i fit in Mm -hmm. and i always felt like how am i supposed to get out from under this crazy crazy thing um but yes any form of nonconformity was basically considered pathological or deliberately defiant the notion that you could possibly have and like i always wanted to work with my hands i always wanted to make art When you grow up with a sense of otherness, like Laura, like myself, like so many others, we often really sense how we disrupt in spaces within our own families. Laura had a sense of how she was not like the rest and longed for a way out. I know what it's like to grow up in a family where my sense of self doesn't really seem to line up with the experiences of others in my family. I wasn't like my brother or my parents, destined for the military, but I also wasn't really sure I knew what I was like at all. I just knew I was different. I think many who feel othered in their own families are drawn to the quirky, the odd, and the creative. However, we all carry the legacies of the people who came before us. Their values, assumptions, and beliefs inform ours, even if we end up radically distinct, even if we are pathologically different or deliberately defiant. My mother's first question was, how are you going to get a job? 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 Right? And my poor partner had come from a family that they had their own strangeness. Her mom's mother and her father's mother were half-sisters. And there was like half the family ran the dairy farm in the country that had they'd owned since the Acadians were expelled. So they were like the seventh generation on the land. And the other side was the city side. So it was the city mice and the country mice. Mm-hmm. And everything the fucking family did was city mice, country mice, and gender segregated the man folk and the women folk. And it was oppressive for my partner. It was oppressive for me. Um, but we replicate our traumas. Mm-hmm. And we replicate our trauma-making situations. And in so many ways, my partner and I, without knowing it, um, 
found within ourselves in our relationship the way to replicate our own respective restrictions and limitations yeah. before there was a chance to reflect on that before you know that that only came with a dialogue of polyamory that only came with an acknowledgement that people are actually behaving this way anyway so let's be honest about it um, and so I think there's many of you know any orientation of this age who I think the difference is I'm informed I'm informed of the alternative by virtue of knowing people who are a generation younger than me yeah. as equals few young people have a chance to know someone my age as their equal few people my age have someone to know like your age as, as an equal that's a really rare opportunity that I mm -hmm. have and something I cherish because it keeps me young and it keeps me drilling down and relearning what I already know so many people my age they think they've earned the right to stop learning they think they've earned the right mm -hmm. to believe they know what they think they know. And so anything new that hits them, they're just going to stack it on top. Mm -hmm. And gender, you can't do that. I'm asking people, by my very existence, to drill back down into everything they think they know and relearn it. And... I've had to do that first and foremost myself. I would never have got to the position where I could come out if I hadn't done that myself. Yeah. And I don't, like, that's where it becomes political for me. I am not from the generation that had a critique of the world that was gender-based mm -hmm. and a notion that, hey, we can play with this and we can mess with our own and other people's heads with this and we can go forward and have a good time by doing stuff that struck me as absolutely outrageous. Right? Uh, I lived in a world that accepted the existence of the gender binary. Yeah. Until it was almost too late mm -hmm. to change course. You know, I say now, 15, 20 years ago, when I first heard about people who were non-binary, non-binary, neither man nor woman, I'm like, I don't know. And 15 years later, I'm like, damn, I wish I thought of that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah. It, it, it's amazing how far we've come once we opened the door to light, how much light came in. It floods. It, it's just extraordinary. Um, and so I think there's a, like, a lot of people my age don't have access to the ways of thinking could help them resolve the conflicts that mm -hmm. are carrying them and burdening them down. And you can see it, the angry white men my age, the uh, uh, hopeless women my age who have resigned themselves to second or third best long ago. I worked in a greenhouse one winter with women my age, and every single one of them had married the man who got them pregnant as oh. a teenager. And like they'd long ago stopped sleeping together, and it was just, you know, I'm like, oh, banging my head. Because at that time, I'm going, I feel like my life is on hold. I want to go live my life. Mm -hmm. I'm going, these people are in their lives, and they're still on hold. Oh my God, is that what life I think that's what life is like for a lot of my generation. Yes, I think. The decline of the industrial economy and the, the break of the promise and the fact that the boomers ahead of us held all the jobs and we got creamed in the 81 recession, we got creamed in the 91 recession, and by that time it was the generation younger than us that was getting the jobs. And, uh, you know, there's this notion that the baby boomers are the cause. And that cohort from like 58 to 64 we never got what the rest of that generation got yeah. and we never got what the generations that came after us got we never got cheap air travel and cheap loans and all of that cheap credit um uh credit's all your generation had to do to get a credit card was get a student loan yeah and you got all the money you ever want yeah um i can't get credit you know, I have a credit card. I can only do uh, um, a subsistence level transactions. Mm. 
because anything of pleasure requires a credit card. Yeah. I couldn't go see a friend of mine's fashion show the other night because I couldn't fucking buy a ticket online. Yeah. Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Since when are we penalized for using cash? Because we're so poor, we don't have credit. No, that's how bad capitalism is. Media representations of older folks usually highlight white, heteronormative beauties looking to sunset their lives on bicycles in national parks, living their best days on one medication or another, and exploring their hard-earned freedom in retirement. But what sort of freedom is there for someone like Laura? She has acknowledged that her life is getting better and better, but she still faces financial barriers she might not have faced if she had maintained a life embraced by the mainstream. When you fall outside the status quo, things are not as easy. And I still think my best bet is to write. Yeah. Because I'm not going to get a job. Like, not a good job around here. I started noticing this when I dipped my toe in politics. Yeah. Um, there is still a night and day difference between, like, a line department of government in their office mm-hmm. during the working day yeah. and me. Yeah, there's a big fucking difference. The uniculture is still very much entrenched in our public services. Do you feel as well? And I'm saying this because I know other people have told this to me, but specifically like older being, and I guess in the elder community and being trans, is that if you were hired within that sphere, you become a token. Um, and yeah, basically, I can only get jobs as a trans person. Mm-hmm. And in the trans community, no, in the elder community, even the elder queer community, they sort of get being trans, but they don't get cis normativity. Mm-hmm. They don't get the notion of being trans on your terms. They only get the notion of being trans on their terms. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Rather than getting affirmation and support from other women, I get competition. We, the cis women, have been dealing with that, Mm -hmm. the patriarchy, for years. And now you're just a man in women's clothing and experiencing it for the first time, and aren't you shocked? Is kind of the at I mean they yeah. wouldn't say it in so much but that was the attitude. I'm sure and you it was felt like, it plenty of times before. And it was like you're not seeing me for who I am. Right? You're still feeling that you need to hold the ground of your gender mm-hmm. against the threat of my in- encroachment. They feel they have to assert something right away to establish a difference. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a cis woman I know who volunteers with a, a, a group that I volunteer with. She's my age. Every time she comes in the space and I'm there, she means to be affirmative and say, feels like she has to, feels like, oh, the trans woman's here. I need to say something affirming mm-hmm. and then says something trans exclusionary. Oh. Okay. Without meaning to. Yeah. She walks in one day. I had a new wig. Instead of saying what she would say to a cis woman or any other woman, like, oh, you did something with hair, you dyed your hair, you got a haircut. Did you get new hair? Hmm. Okay, separate me out for not having natural hair. Okay, now now you've asserted the difference. Now you can be comfortable in the space with me because you know I'm not actually like you. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very common thing. Mm-hmm from cis women my age yeah and younger people they're fine with me as long as i'm not sexual it's okay if you're assigned female at birth but not if you're assigned male at birth Mm -hmm. at that it's okay as long as we're eunuchs and as long as we're asexual but if we initiate anything or show any kind of attraction it must be predatory 
it's never accepted as this. And so that's very noticeable in those circles where people are very free with their physical contact with one another, and I am not touched. Hmm. And if I initiate it, whoa! Yeah. And so I just don't. Um, and there's probably a lot of us that are like waiting to be asked to the dance. It's funny, I'd written a piece about this in the Nova Scotia Advocate around transgender day disability, uh, visibility, basically saying it wasn't for us, it was for you folks, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, allies, buck up. As diversity usually is, yeah. And, and, you know, on the one hand, excusing my own friends because of the age difference, which accounts for everything. But my experience also resembles the experience of a, you know, a any age group of other trans women I know. We only have one-on-one friendships. Even if our friends form a circle of friends, we aren't part of that circle. Nobody ever invites us to group events that they're doing for fun. We're invited to the public events they're going to, Mm -hmm. but not to the private events that they do. And yes, they know they're being trans-exclusive. Yeah. And they like it that way because they don't, they're not comfortable with us in those environments that might be sexually charged. Mm-hmm. And there's no real acknowledgement of that, in part because they feel like they, there's something wrong with them. It's like there's not, nobody owes us anything. But can we please start talking about, if we're really going to be radical here, what constitutes um, desirability and attractiveness? And mm-hmm. what, what uh, constitutes real experience versus, you know, I mean, there's, it, there's a certain element in the in the in the sort of notion of sex as queer sports you know that is competitive and is objectifying and it's all about my orgasm and not about our experience it's about who can turn the other person on the most and 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 there's an awful uh, kind of fetishization of each other and objectification of each other and it's difficult from the outside to know how much of that is play and how much of that actually has a dialogue and is conscious and is something people talk about but I find that a lot of the people I know are pretty emotionally self-contained mm-hmm. and that relationships are something else. Um, and that's different in my experience. So I had the privilege of a time when we were free to really actually emotionally bond with one another mm-hmm. and not worry about whether it met a particular model or standard of political uh, dynamism. We're identified we're accepted in, in, in collective spaces, but nobody yet really knows how to integrate us in their private lives. Yeah. Not without disrupting that. And that's the isolation we still feel. Yeah. And, you know, like, I go back to the UN Declaration on Human Rights, you know, the three principles of, of uh, equality, you know, of human rights are equality, self-determination, and full participation in society. And we don't have full participation in society. Neither do Nova Scotians with disabilities, neither do Nova Scotians of color, neither do Nova Scotians with an indigenous ancestry. Um, uh, And we won't until those who do ask us to dance. The sense of isolation Laura feels is real for her and for so many others who exist in or on the fringes of society. There is a lot of talk of inclusion these days, but as Laura says, people of color, folks living with disabilities, Nova Scotians of indigenous ancestry, and people within the queer community, especially transgender folks, are often tokenized. People are celebrated for their diversity, but so often the barriers which oppress them are reinforced. We hear stories of people overcoming, and I am making air quotes around the word overcoming. The stories are of people who are celebrated for being resilient or innovative, for overcoming their barriers, but what about the folks who are just barely making do? Celebrating people who overcome the barriers sometimes depends upon us accepting that the barriers are immovable, that people have to overcome as individuals. I'd rather believe we should be working towards tearing down those barriers. I feel like many folks are well-intentioned, but we do so much harm to each other by trying to be kind because instead of making things better, we find workarounds within the status quo. 
How deep is the desire for people who are marginalized to have full participation? It isn't very deep if that desire does not extend into all reaches of society. Not until everyone is invited to dance. I had a severe hypothermic episode when I was 22, and it's left me with, like, almost cold-blooded. Yeah. Like, a, a real marginal ability to stay warm. I spent a lot of energy just generating body heat. I burnt off so many critical layers of fat. If only we could do that for our political systems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so what I was saying was, like, you know, that, like we're not, we're not fully included. We're let in the door, but we're not fully included. And it's, it's in part because people are afraid of what they'll lose. Mm-hmm. And it's in part because they're afraid of what they'll gain. Yeah. You know, we're afraid of some of the things that our learnings can teach us. Partly they're afraid to find we're as normal as we are. And it's not for a political reason, and it's not for a diabolical reason, and it's not because of transphobia. That's just how we're wired. Mm-hmm. And we used to be wired to think we could only match our bodies in one configuration. And we've learned there's much joy in doing something else, you know, and we'll get there. It's just, um, it would be easy to have a lot of regrets at my age about what I don't get to participate in and what I don't get to see. But how many people get to die absolutely assured that it's going to be better? It is. It's going to be way better. Yeah. And it's getting better all the time. And I'm participating in more than I ever imagined I would get to in the closet. I mean, all those years in the closet, I imagined all those things. The one thing it never, ever occurred to me to even imagine was that living openly as I do now, I would know someone else like me. It never once occurred to me there were enough other trans people that I would actually know one, much less like go to a dance where half the people there are trans. Yeah. That's extraordinary. And it's, it, uh, you know, the dark ages were as much about our own darkness as the darkness around us. It, you know, those things that are pervasive occur within our own heads in, the, in a microcosm of the way they occur in society at large. It's just as dark. Um, so, yeah, it was like when the light came in, it just didn't stop. Yeah. It took the door away, you know, and we'll get there. It's just... Laura has a critical lens, but she also has an incredible optimism for the future. Like I said earlier, Laura is part of the inspiration for this podcast, but she also sparked an interest in me to photograph queer elders. Hearing her and others speak last year, I was struck by how much queer elders have given to younger generations. I was also moved by the sense of what was lost in their journeys through a less equitable world. The experiences of queer elders are like threads which run through any equality we might experience today and the justice we will hopefully experience in the future. I want to do more to share the experiences of queer elders in Nova Scotia through photography and other media. So I asked Laura what she thinks her legacy might be. To the degree that I have anything to, I mean, it's very tempting to someone in my position to try and act the role of the elder. But to do that, you actually have to believe you have something to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I know people who are like that and how dominant they can be and how much they take up space and dominate the dialogue with what is effectively irrelevant to the experience of those who are actually in struggle. And I don't want to make that same mistake myself. The other thing that I'm always aware of in what are really heartfelt and genuine human relations, these are not friendships of convenience that I have with people who have my age. They're like, these are central relationships in my life. And it's very easy 
for someone my age to pass off the benefit of experience as enlightenment. The potential for the misplay of power is constant. And you have to check yourself because no one else can. Yeah. No one else has the power. Um, and so I don't set out to try and provide mentorship. But I also am a parent. So I understand the importance of not sacrificing the teachable moment. Um, but I'm learning so much. I'm gaining so much. I'm getting so much healthier with every day, with every encounter, with every set of questions that makes me reflect. All I can do is be authentically myself. And if that helps others be authentically themselves, okay, then that's a contribution. It's kind of like with my writing. It's met with a surprising amount of success that kind of baffles me, particularly among like cis people for whom it suddenly seems accessible. All I do is put the words on the page, right? What's a reader? A reader is somebody who enjoys forging their own meaning from the words on the page. And they're going to do it whatever words I put on the page. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to feed them schlock, because I care about my own writing to a standard that satisfies me. But when I do, once it's written, once it's published, it's not about my writing. It's about their reading. And they're underappreciated for the contribution they bring because they're the ones that are going to take those words and forge whatever meaning they're going to forge out of it and bring it forward. And that's them. That's readership. So the degree that somebody younger than me gains from something I share from my experience, that's them interpreting their own experience. That's them asserting and thriving as an individual. It's not me being a teacher. It's them feeding on the stuff of life and living which is as it should be um, and so again I just kind of keep it micro keep it about my experience just being open and vulnerable about what I go through because at the end of the day I think I'm a pretty ordinary person and what I do is pretty, pretty ordinary and so it probably resonates with a lot of other people who are also pretty ordinary um, and um, that's great the point at which I think I have something to teach and try and do it you know that's I've always said when I grow up I want to be retired firmly but gently that's the time when I actually think oh I'm the elder now I need mm -hmm. that's when it's time for me to take a seat like what's gonna happen next yeah. I'm not a great reader because I can't stand having my head when it's like what the hell am I missing what's going like yeah no I can hardly wait to see how it turns out but you know like I said earlier I was the first person identified as male in my family for like 150 years who didn't volunteer for service in the military There was that notion in the 20th century, you know, sort of to whom much is given, much is expected, that you didn't get anything without sacrificing, and that you were supposed to give stuff away. Mm -hmm. And it was supposed, like the old Protestant work ethic, you go to hell if you get anything for nothing. The only legitimate way to acquire anything is work, and work has to hurt and or suck to count as work. Mm. I internalized that for years and I lived that. And I know people who do, men who just totally deny because it has to hurt and or suck to count as work. Yeah. Um, I feel sorry for that population that hasn't had a chance to deconstruct all the ways in which we've deluded ourselves in this horrible system. Um, I've had to give up everything I'd worked to acquire to transition, except myself.
And in my case, and this is the saving grace, is my relationship with my kids. Um, I had a friend who suicided about a year ago, and it really hit me. Like, I've had 21 friends in the past six years now. 21 friends in the past six years? Suicide, yeah. Not all trans, but mostly trans. Uh, Trans or troubled, obviously. Um, And this person, of all the trans women I've met, they're story most closely paralleled my own. Two chief differences. They weren't as literate and so they couldn't participate in social media to the nuance that I can. And it's been a lifeline for me. Facebook was my only connection for years. I lived for those posts and for people reading it and responding and and I had other people who knew who I was Um, and they did not have they had very very difficult relationships with their cis male children possibly because of the expectations of masculinity with which they were raised but we were always open with our kids and um Even though they saw me as somebody who was a man, um, I was constantly questioning the way masculinity was practiced. And I had a dialogue with them about that. Um, I've preserved my relationship with my kids. And that's a lifeline for me. If I did not have that anchor, I don't know. Um, If that anchor, if it was hostile and difficult, I might not be here now. Um, They closed down the bridge at the right time a couple of years ago when they went to do work on it. Um, And so I'm very, very lucky. I don't notice the ways in which I'm responsible for that. Um, I just know that it is. And I'm grateful for it. there's a part of me that really re- regrets. I don't get to be me and be young. And I almost transitioned when I was 22 and I basically wasn't brave enough. And there's a part of me that would have loved to have had all of those experiences. In order for me to have had those, I wouldn't have had my kids. And so where I am in my life, I would have loved to have had those experiences, but I wouldn't trade my kids for anything. Um, So I'm really lucky that I get to live kind of both lives, uh, because people won't get to do that in the future. It's a very, very unique time, and I'm in a very unique place. And it's taken me a long while to embrace that uniqueness because you can appreciate all I want is to be ordinary. We're all light. We're all energy. I suspect we're all the same energy. And so we should be lifting each other. Um not grasping and holding for ourselves but like that really is something that struck me about this experience is that the more I've had to give away the more I have to give the more I gain and the more I get back mm-hmm. the quality of friendships I have now um, the solidity of the I always felt like I was living without a net mm-hmm. now there's a net under me and I know that net's there and Um, that says something about the authenticity of the people I've chosen to surround myself with and what I've learned from them about being authentic myself. I've been a thousand hideous photographs and a moment or two of true grace. And nothing about the thousand hideous photographs surprises me. But I was utterly delighted to discover grace. 
you know, and that it was possible to achieve. Laura offers so much wisdom, clarity, and wit through her presence and her writing. I struggled a lot to edit this episode because I really wanted to preserve her words because they have so much value. I am incredibly grateful she spent time with me for Quirky and or Queer. You can find some of Laura's writing on Nova Scotia Advocate at nsadvocate.org backslash author backslash Laura dash Shepherd. Be sure to look out for her in the community events throughout Halifax as well. We live in interesting and complex times. In many ways, things are getting better for folks around the world. In many other ways, things are getting worse. Many in marginalized communities still don't even get the chance to live to be seniors, let alone get to take advantage of retirement packages. I read an alarming statistic the other day stating that trans women of color in the United States have an average life expectancy of 35 years old. 35. Meanwhile, the average life expectancy overall hovers around double that number. We need to do better. I think we can do better. Laura's optimism for a better world shows we can work against the ideologies and structures which oppress, not just individually, but collectively. Thank you to Fieldnote for providing the theme song for Quirky and or Queer. And if you're interested in supporting this artistic endeavor of mine through financial means, you can make monthly contributions through my Patreon account at patreon.com backslash Q-A-O-Q. As always, thanks to my main sponsor, Glennis, my mother, who helped me develop my curiosity and spiciness from a young age. She is the fiercest person I know. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe, share the podcast with friends and family, and give me a rating on Facebook and Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps. So until next time, you quirky queerdos, thank you for listening to Quirky and or Queer.